Good evening, saints. Um, tonight we go through Exodus chapter 12, and that is our, our text for this evening. Let's bow our hearts and, and seek the Lord. Father, we are so grateful once again to be able to look to your word, and in that to be able to see your heart, and that to be able to see our heart, and to understand, Lord, the enormity of your grace how you've bestowed so, so much grace. We're thankful, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that he has made the way that we have access unto you. And we want to accept that access and, and apply that access and come boldly to your throne of grace to be able to not just learn from you, but to be transformed by you, by your spirit, by your word. We want to grow. We want to grow in intimacy. We want to grow in, in understanding, of course, but, but more so we want to grow in a deeper relationship with you. We want, to, we want to behold you. We want to exalt you. We want to glorify you. So knit our hearts this evening. Truly give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 12. Last week we went through Exodus chapter 11, and we dealt with that in depth. I know there was only 10 verses, and we covered it a really long time, but we were trying to really set the foundation for what we were going to learn here in chapter 12. And I didn't want to bog down chapter 12 too much dealing with all the foundational issues, so we dealt with that last week as we went through chapter 11. But as we come here in chapter 12, keep in mind that there is one thing that we should grasp about chapter 12 prior to getting into it. And that is this, that chapter 12, in, in a way, expounds on chapter 11, verses 5 and 7. I want to read those two verses back in chapter 11 to you, because in chapter 5 and chapter 7, of Exodus 11, it makes this statement, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Not all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. So it's not just the Egyptians. This is, this is all-encompassing. Both um, Egypt and Israel equally um, could suffer in this judgment. And so he says in verse 5 again of Exodus 11, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the male, of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the animals. And in verse 7 of Exodus 11, he says, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. I want you to understand that God, in many of these plagues, said that there's a difference. There's a difference between Egypt. There's a difference between Israel. But in this here last final devastating judgment of death of the firstborn, you have to understand that both Egypt and Israel could equally suffer in this judgment. There is, you know, condemnation basically for every firstborn equally. And yet, chapter 12 is going to teach us that there's going to be this deliverance to those who use the substitute that God, by his grace, had chosen 
for the death that was going to be required. There's a passage I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he adds to it the wages of sin is death. But uniquely what he'll do is this. In Romans chapter 5, and I want to read this to you. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. It makes a declaration. And so I just want to read this this to you. Um, It says in verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. In other words, all men are condemned. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. So this gift comes to all men. In other words, all men can appropriate what it is that God says, here is the substitute for the death that I'm going to require, because the wages of sin is death. And so he gives this opportunity for everyone. And this is the blessing of Exodus chapter 12, because both Egypt and Israel could suffer this judgment, yet at the same time, there would be deliverance to anyone in Egypt or in Israel who would come and say, you know what, I'm going to use this substitute that God has determined would be the substitute for the death that would be required. And so within this, we make a note that that what we're seeing here is, yes, God says there is a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. You go walk through the land of Egypt and devastation. You walk through the land of, of where Israel is in Goshen, and they had trees, they had fruit, they had, you know, plants, they had cattle, they had everything, and yet not so in Egypt. But whether you were in Israel or Egypt, if you would come now to chapter 12 and apply the blood of the sacrifice, that you would have deliverance. The the death that is required by this judgment is going to pass by you. It's going to be satisfied. So let's jump into Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, it begins in verse 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So what happens is this. At this point, they are in what would be known as the the seventh month of the Hebrew civil calendar. And now God is going to make it the first month of the Hebrew calendar. Ecclesiastical calendar. Now it's called here the month of Abib. Um, for those of you who are familiar, if you jump over to Exodus chapter 13, verse 4, it says, On this day you are going out in the month of Abib. The seventh month was called Abib. Now, eventually, as they would go to Babylon, Babylon would later on change that name of Abib to 
Nisan. So when we call it the 10th of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan, when we call it Nisan, keep in mind that we're using a Babylonian term for a bib, which is the actual Hebrew term which is used. Now, as the Babylonians changed it, it became the norm that we don't call it the, the month of a bib, we call it the month of Nisan. But properly, it should be the month of a bib. And it's interesting that what happens is that he takes this seventh month of the civil calendar, makes it the first month in the ecclesiastical calendar. And so when, when a bib that simply means it's the green ear, which is the, the later part of the harvest, now becomes the first in this spiritual Israel that is going to be. And in a sense, it's almost as where um, Jesus there in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, he makes a statement, and he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is what God does. He makes all things new. And so when we come into that right relationship with Christ, when we come into this right relationship to God, that's what he does. He makes all things new. When we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. It's a whole new beginning to it. It's a whole new life. We're called born again. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we're looking at here this spiritual significance of even though it's the seventh civil month, it becomes a brand new spiritual beginning for them. So that's why he says in verse 2, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this is what he begins to do. And then in verse 3, he says, speak to the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. A couple of things to, to make a note here in verse 3, that you, if you understand, it says, speak to all the, and then he says, congregation. Speak to all the congregation. This is the first time this word is, is used, the term Congregation. It, it deals with, in a spiritual sense, it deals with in a religious sense. And so no longer is Israel simply looked to as the children of Israel, the children of Israel. Um, they have been from the very beginning in Exodus 1.1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel. So in Exodus 1.1, Exodus 1.7, Exodus 1.9, Exodus 1.12, Exodus 1.13. All these times are called the children of Israel, children of Israel, children of Israel. I want to read to you just two other verses dealing with the children of Israel. But it says this in Exodus 3.14, Exodus 3.15, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in verse 15, it says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So God has been referring to them as the children of Israel, the children of Israel, over and over again. Now he chooses here for the first time 
in chapter 12, once he realizes and he's made this declaration, Pharaoh's going to let you go. This is the last of it. So he tells Moses and Aaron, I want you to speak to the congregation of Israel. He now moves them from simply being children to into this spiritual entity that he's going to make them into. And of course, he wants to make them initially into this kingdom of priests. Um, you know, so they would be a kingdom of kings and priests. They would be the, the royalty of God, but they, that's what he initially wanted for them. And that's what he wants for us as the church as well. So keep in mind, he does use the term congregation, changes up the meaning, and he'll be using this interchangeably throughout. But understand that when we read the word congregation, it now takes Israel and makes it into a spiritual sense, not just the children itself. And the other thing that I want you to make a note of here in verse 3 is it says that on the 10th of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. What we're about to see is this, that the most devastating judgment to fall upon Egypt, the death of the firstborn, it was conquered, it was rendered inactive by a lamb. Think about this. It's, it's almost in that way where when we look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 17, how the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders of the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. I love it how the Lamb, which is, you know, we look at a Lamb as, well, the Lord sends his house as what? Sheep among wolves. Now, can you imagine the lambs among the wolves? To them, it's, it's just basically a snack. And yet this lamb put the fear into all the inhabitants of the earth. And the lamb will also, we see here, it will conquer and render this most devastating of judgments inactive. And so I wanted to make a note how he does that right at the beginning here in verse 3. But now he goes on and explains a little bit about what that lamb should be here in verses 4 through 6. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. What we begin to see here is, is you have to have this lamb, and the, the, the lamb itself is going to be for a household. In other words, for the whole family. 
It talks about if the household is too small, then you bring in your neighbor, and it has to be according to a number of persons, each man's need. Now, eventually, the, the, the rabbis would say 10 is a really good number. Let's make sure that there's 10 that are partaking of every lamb, and so you have an idea of that. But it does say here that it's according to each man's need. You shall make account for the lamb. So each lamb for a house each lamb, if, if there's not enough people, the, the lamb is always sufficient for the house, make no mistake, but sometimes the house isn't sufficient for the lamb, so you bring in more, at least for this sacrifice. But it does say in verse 5, it says, your lamb shall be without blemish. I want you to understand that what here is already being told is the sacrifice has to be perfect. It has to be without blemish. And, and then they would come and they would take this sacrifice and they would kill it. But you have to understand that it wasn't the perfection of the sacrifice that saved the people or the firstborn who would be in the house. It wasn't the perfection. The sacrifice had to be perfect, but it wasn't his perfection that would save them. It would be the death of the sacrifice. It would be that sacrificial death of the, the sacrifice that would be that which redeemed them. And so keep in mind that we know that it's not the, the, the perfection of the sacrifice, it's the death of the sacrifice. Yet what's interesting is this, most religions look to and they admire the, the, the life of the teacher, they make no mistakes. We do the same thing. I mean, but, you know, if they do it to Confucius, they do it to Muhammad, and they always try to look to say, oh, look at the life of our teacher. Look at his life and look at what he does. And, and there are also those who look to Jesus and they really only admire his life. They admire his life. They say, oh, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet and all these other things about his life. But you have to understand that it was his death that saved us, not, not his life. His life was perfect, showing who he was, and his life was perfect, thus making him so that he wouldn't die for his own sins, that he could die for our sins. He could be a substitute for us. So you have that perfection of the life, which makes it this perfect sacrifice, although keep in mind that it's not the life of Jesus that we celebrate. I mean, we, we look to it and we identify it, but it's his death. And then through that death that he now dies for us, we die with him. And then we look to the resurrection because the resurrection from the death, now we come with him and we are now raised spiritually into this eternal life. And so I think it's important to note that when it comes to this, you have to have a lamb that is without blemish in the first year. That's what it says in verse 5, the lamb without blemish in the first year. Take it from the sheep or the goats, and now you shall keep it until the 14th day, verse 6, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill it at midnight. It's interesting that it's almost as if the, the Spirit is moving, not to say where it says in verse 6, now the congregation of Israel shall kill them at midnight, and it is in the singular. So it's almost if there's this prophecy that you have a lamb for each household, and the congregation, the assembly of the congregation shall kill it singularly, 
there at twilight. So in a sense, it sort of reminds us of where um, Jacob was taking Isaac. Strike that. Abraham was taking Isaac up into the mountain and where he would slay him. And there in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Isaac makes that statement where Abraham says, um, Isaac says, you know, where's the lamb for the offering? And, and Abraham makes this statement then in verse 8, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb. The term for isn't in there. It's God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So note, he already makes this note, the lamb is going to be for the burnt offering. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, and I want to read to you John chapter 1, verse 29. It is John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He points out that here's Jesus. Jesus is going to take away the sins of the world. But keep in mind that he is not going to be taking away the sins through his life. He's going to be taking away the sins through his death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it declares this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we understand that he's going to take away the sins of the world, and he puts our sin upon Jesus so that he gives us his righteousness. And then, of course, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, makes this statement. I want to read verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Verse 19, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. So we see that Jesus is this perfect lamb. Jesus is the lamb that's going to be killed. And so uniquely here at the end of verse 6, where it doesn't say that you shall kill them at twilight, it breaks it back to the singular sense, and it says you shall kill it at twilight. One of the things that I do want you to see here as we, we look to this, that in verse 3, it made this statement, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. And so you have this lamb that comes into the home on the 10th of the month. You take the lamb, and it's now in your home. And then it says in verse 6, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then you kill the lamb. Now, I don't know if you've ever brought something that's a baby, precious little baby lamb, or a baby puppy, or a baby kitten, or a baby bunny. You bring something precious into your house, and when you hold on to it for about five days, from the 10th until the 14th, this lamb would become a part of the home. It would be where you're accustomed to it now, and it would become, in a sense, a very precious thing to the household. 
and it would be, you'd have emotions to it. You'd have attachments to it. It wouldn't just be, oh, here's just a lamb. We're going to kill it. But it's now part of your home. It's part of what you do. And so you're going to have this sacrifice, and it's going to have an emotional cost as well. It's going to be something that was precious to you and, and create emotional attachment. And so, But you are going to then kill it. But we see here in verse 7, after they then kill this lamb or the lambs at twilight, it says in verse 7, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. You have to be understanding that in order for this, lamb to truly bring about that area where we saw that it would, you know, conquer this most devastating judgment that was going to be upon Israel. It wasn't just his perfect life, and it wasn't just the shedding of his blood. Now, to understand, he did shed his blood. You are going to kill the lamb, but you don't just spill the blood. What we see here is this. In verse 7, you have to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they're going to eat it. I want to bring a little bit of clarity to what this passage is trying to declare to us. If you jump a little ahead in this chapter, and you go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. It'll make a statement, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning." So what is being said here? Well, it talks about the hyssop and it talks about a basin. Now, what's interesting is this, that the blood we realize has to be applied. This term basin is a unique term. It actually comes from the root of a Egyptian word. And so the, the, the word that we see that, that comes into that from the Hebrew is it's spelled C-A-P-H. It's pronounced sof. And this, this term sof comes from a, a larger word, a larger root, which is safaf. Now, safaf is where C-A-P-H-A-P-H, safaf. And safaf actually means it's a doorkeeper. It's a doorkeeper. So what happens is this that there is a term that is found in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 17. I want to read it to you, but it makes this statement. In 1 Kings 14, 17, it says, Then Jeroboam, Jeroboam's wife, arose and departed and came to Tirzah when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. This term threshold, it's the same word that is used here, and this term threshold, 
is, is something different than a basin or a bowl. Some people think that when you look at Exodus 12, 22, that when it says a basin, some translators do call it bowl, and it can be bowl, but I do believe that here in Exodus 12, 22, it actually refers to that trench. Now, what a sof is, it's, it's a, it is the threshold, but in Egypt, what would they would do is this. They would call it a sof, and it would be a trench, that would stop the floodwater of the Nile from coming into their house. So there upon the door, there would be this trench, a little trough there at the threshold, so that the floodwaters wouldn't go into the house. It would be diverted off. And he says, that trench, that threshold is where I want you to slay the lamb. And so the lamb itself was literally slain there in the doorway. And the blood of the lamb would then flow into this threshold, would flow into that soft, and then you would take the hyssop, and that's where here in verse 7, you will take some of the blood, and that would be the blood that was there at the very threshold of the door, the blood that was in the basin or the soft, that little trench, you will take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the, um, on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, the doorpost is, is pretty easy. Those are the two sides of the doors. The lintel is a little different. It's the top threshold of the door. So keep in mind that what you're seeing is there's blood on the ground. There's blood on that threshold. Then you take the blood from the ground and you apply it on the two sides of the door and you apply it to the top. So you literally have this sign of a cross that's being applied as you have this lamb that is slain. So you take that lamb and you have to not just shed its blood, not just spill its blood, but you have to understand that what God tells the children of Israel or any of the Egyptians who would listen is what you're going to do is this. You have to apply this blood that is being shed. And, and that's what's important about what we see is that, you know, our whole thing is we need to apply that work of Jesus Christ. That's why Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm applying his death. And so I've been crucified with Christ. The application is now part of me, and the blood is applied. So as we look to this, now we begin to see in verses 8 through 10 then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. What remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. We begin to see here in verses 8 through 10, as it talks about how you're going to eat it, it makes a statement in verse 8, they shall eat the flesh. But the, it has to be roasted in fire. Keep in mind that that fire, in a sense, is going to talk about the um, like a judgment of God. You're, you're looking at that being a religious type. 
And so it has to be there consumed in the fire. It has to be burned in the fire. You can't boil it. So keep in mind that if you are going to boil a lamb, that what you'd have to do is what? You'd have to break it up, cut it up in order to stick it in a pot. So if you've ever made chicken soup, you normally don't stick in a whole chicken. You cut it up and you allow it to do it. Well, what happens with this lamb is that, that you are not allowed to break any of the bones of that lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, he makes this statement, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. It was important that the lamb was consumed whole. The lamb was sacrificed whole. The blood could be spilled, but you could not break any of the bones. In a sense, it's very similar to where Psalm 22, verse 17 makes that statement, I count all my bones. In a sense, it's that same thing. We're in John chapter 19, verses 33 through 36. It'll make this statement, when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Because in verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And of course, when they come to Jesus, of course, they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified on the other side of him. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. And so what they do with him then is... Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that he may believe. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. So it's important that this Passover is not broken the bones should not be broken. It was necessary because this would be that perfect type. It would be a picture of the true sacrifice where, as Abraham spoke to Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt sacrifice, that the, the wrath of God, that fire of God, the, his wrath, that Jesus would bear it all. So I think it's important to realize that he doesn't have his legs broken. And you have to um, roast all of it in the fire. You have to roast the head with its legs and its entrails there in verse 9. The entrails simply mean, you know, all the guts that are there. You, you cook it whole. In verse 10, and the only thing that was allowed to come out of that lamb, of course, was the blood. In verse 10, it says, you shall let none of it remain until morning. What remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. So you don't have to consume the whole lamb. So it's not like, okay, you know, let, let's get to, you know, figure out who's going to eat the entrails, who's going to eat the head. You don't do that. You can burn the rest of it. You, you take of the flesh, you eat of the flesh, 
but you don't eat of the, the rest of it, the stuff that, that we would consider nasty. So everything that was good, you could partake of. You leave the rest, and what the rest was there, you burn it with fire. It has to be completely consumed. And so the, the head will be consumed, the bones will be you know, charred, the, the entrails will be consumed, everything will be done. And then in verse 11, he makes a statement, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So when you're eating this, you have to eat it completely dressed. So you have to have a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, a staff in your hand. In other words, while you're eating this sacrifice, you have to realize that by faith, as I'm dressed to go, I'm leaving. This is the last sacrifice. I'm leaving after the sacrifice. This sacrifice is going to sustain me. It's going to be the substitute for the death. I'm going to be leaving Egypt. I'm going to be completely redeemed, not just from the firstborn, but all the nation of Israel, anyone who is under the homes, they'll be redeemed from the tyranny of Egypt. And so, this is what we're, we're recognizing that's going on. And so when you're eating this, know this, you're going, have on your, um, your belt, on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So as we look to this now in verse 12, he says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. He says, I'm going to pass through the land and I'm going to strike all the firstborn. Now we've already made a note there in verse 23 extensively as we looked at chapter 11 last week. It says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two posts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So it's the destroyer who's going to do this. God himself will take credit. I'm going to be the ones who does this. I'm going to be the one who does it. So I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn. In other words, I'm going to allow the destroyer to come in and, and execute judgment. God can do that. Now, we understand, as we were looking last week, that you know it's the blood that separates Israel itself. God says, listen, you got to get rid of all these idols that you've collected in Egypt, and they still haven't done that. So the, the separation isn't that Israel is better than Egypt. We do recognize that God has just chosen Israel as his child. He just said, I'm going I'm to set you apart. Now through this, anyone who comes into the house, they will, the house that has the blood applied, they will be saved. And so he says, I will strike the firstborn, verse 12, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So in this, any God that they would say, this God is going to protect me. This God is going to watch over me. This God is better than the, the God of, of Israel. I will be saved. He says, every God is going to be known for the failure that they are, except me. I am the Lord. Now in verse 13, he, he comes to this point 
where he says, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is key. The blood shall be a sign. And that's exactly what it was. The blood was a sign that the death that was demanded by God through this last judgment had been satisfied. So as the the destroyer comes to shed blood, he comes and he sees the blood. And he realizes that the death that I have come to bring, the judgment that I have come to, to bring about, it's already been done. And I think it's important to recognize that it's the same thing with applying that blood of Jesus Christ, that, that his blood that we recognize, that we've been washed in that blood, that it is that sign to God that the death that, that came about through Adam had been satisfied, and now we can again be connected back to the Lord. And that's where that passage again in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, all of us were due to die. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification in life. So all men now have the opportunity as the blood of Christ has been spilled. But what you have to do is you have to apply that blood. You have to receive that work as your own. Now verse 14. He goes on to say, So this day shall be to you as a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast, as an everlasting ordinance. This day is going to be, as it says here, a memorial. And what happens is that that this date here is, as we are going to understand, the Passover predates the Levitical feast. Sometimes we look to say the Passover is one of the Levitical feasts. It actually predates it. As God establishes the feast, the Passover is there, but the Passover itself is far before these Levitical feasts. And so he says here in verse 14, this day shall be to you a memorial. It's going to be a sign. Now, in Exodus 12, I want you to move ahead a little bit to verses 24 through 26. And follow with me here, please. It says, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance, you and your sons forever. So, this Passover, this feast, this lamb that is shed, the blood that is applied. He says in verse 24 of Exodus 12, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance, an act of obedience, for you and your sons forever. And it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service, that you should continue to do this act of worship and recognition. 
And in verse 26, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by, by this memorial that you're doing? I think it's important when, when the children are going to ask, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this act that you're performing, this act that you're declaring is worship? The children are actually seeing physically this act of worship that takes place inside the house. And it's one of these things that the children aren't seeing it just as, here is an event that we told you about, this is a story that we've shared. It isn't just simply a story that is is relayed and spoken to them, but it is an act of worship. It's a service unto God. It's a memorial. It's a statement. And when they ask you, what is it that I'm seeing you do? So keep in mind that I think there's a lot of times that as, as Christians, we, we, we bring our children, we bring our grandchildren, and we, we bring them to the scriptures and we read to them devotions. We read to them the word of God. And so often what it is is, is they're, they're hearing, they're hearing, and they're hearing all these things, but they're not seeing in our lives that there's a difference. They're not seeing the service we're giving unto the Lord. And I think what happens is that if they don't see your life, if they don't see the service, or they're not seeing what you do as a memorial, saying this is to glorify God. If you're not seeing it, then, then, then what are they going to look to as far as, well, what is God's will for my life? All I got to do is just read a few stories. No, it, it's about the transformation. It's about acting on the information that God gives us. And that is so true. So often we read devotions and we recognize, oh, wow, the Lord spoke to me, and yeah, I'll think about this, and I'll, I'll be reminded of it. But it comes to what are you going to do with the information? What are you going to do with what God is declaring? And so I think it's so important that what we see here in verse 14, this day shall be to you as a memorial and you shall keep it. There's actions that have to do it. And so often I do think that when God does things in your life, that it, there should be an action that you do, not just a recognition in a prayer or recognition, but, but really, God, you know, this is something where, where I don't want to forget what it is that you've done, and I want to make this an act of worship. I want to continue to recognize here what you've done. So when we see here, after he says it's immoral, now he's going to go and he's going to talk about this unleavened bread. In verses 15 through 20, it makes a statement, seven days shall be, you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So get rid of any leaven in your house, any yeast, that which is a rotting agent, a putrefying agent, get rid of the leaven, remove it from your houses. Whoever eat leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off. And on the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. In other words, it shall be a special day. We're going to eventually see it. It'll be a Sabbath. 
That's what the Holy Convocation is going to turn into, a day of rest and worship. On the seventh day, there shall be a Holy Convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done in them. In other words, the rest of the Sabbath, but that which everyone must eat, that only, that only may be prepared by you. So, you shall observe the, and it says in the Bible, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But if you look at your Bible closely, the Feast of is what? It's in italics. It's not the Feast of Unleavened at this point. It's going to be, you shall observe unleavened bread. For on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened in that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So we're looking at this point of being unleavened. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, makes a statement, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure that you go to law against one another. Why do you rather not accept wrong? Oh, I'm reading 6, 7. Let's read in chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says, just purge out this old leaven, that which is rotting, that you could be a new lump, because you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, keep the feast, not with the old leaven, Live this life not the way that you did with the old life and the old sin, the old rotting, but with the, and not with the leaven of malice and wickedness who we were before Christ, but with the unleavened bread, the purity of sincerity and truth. And I think this is important as we begin to look to it. One other thing that I do want to make a note as he comes about and he calls the nation of Israel. Here in chapter 12, something uniquely that he does, he says in verse 17, you shall observe the unleavened bread for on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. The same thing he'll say in verse 41 of chapter 12, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass in, that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Here we see that, that God looks to Israel, and in a sense what he's doing is where that passage, if you're familiar with it, there in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, Paul makes a statement, and I love his heart how he does it, but he says this at the end of verse 17. He says, it's God who gives life to the dead 
and he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. In the same way as Gideon would be threshing the, the wheat there in a wine press, God would look at him and say, Oh, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. So is he would not be on the hillside where the wind would blow and people could see him threshing. He'd be in this cave in a valley hiding low so that, you know, where you would have no wind so that you wouldn't have all these stuff flying into your, the, where you're pressing out the, the grapes into the wine. You don't want all the, the, the leaves to blow around. And so he's hiding out there, but God still calls him the mighty man of valor. And I love while God simply says, I'm going to take you and your armies. Now, they're not going to become armies until with Joshua, um, but God already sees it as a done deal. And of course, as they come into the promised land again. Now in verse 21 of Exodus 12, then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. We've been through that. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a, is a, is a plant. Um, it's sort of like a stick, not, not a long stick, but it'll sort of be like a, um, it'll have leaves on it, thin. Um, you'll take some and it'll be like a bunch. And, and it'll be thinner with the, the tops. It'll be kind of like a paintbrush, but you dip it there. You should take a bunch of hyssop, verse 22, dip it in the blood that's in the basin. We've covered that, the threshold. And you strike the lintel, the top of the door, the two posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So we covered that last week. We see God's protection. And the protection is through the application of the blood of the sacrifice that God will say, now this devastation of a judgment of death has been satisfied because death has already come to this house through God's chosen sacrifice. And so it makes a statement in verse 24, and you shall observe this thing. Do it as an ordinance, you and your sons forever. And it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, you shall keep this service, this action, not just the same, but it's an action, it's, it's a doing thing. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this action that you're doing? You shall say, it's worship. Why am I doing this? It's worship. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. It was, it's, it's this worship because God has given a substitute instead of me. And the blood was shed and the blood was applied and I have this life and I've been redeemed. And so we see verse 27, it's, you shall say it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. And this is the heart of what it all comes down to. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So they worshiped and notice what they did. They went out and they walked in obedience. And I think that's important. It always is, you know, start off in obedience, worship, 
and obedience. You, you know, so often it's like, well, I, I've walked in obedience, I've worshiped now, is it my time? No, it, it's always his time. So verse 28, after they, they begin to worship at the end of verse 27, they went away and they did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So they accepted the word and they begin to walk it. And now in verse 29, and it came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn. Now keep in mind, if you go back to verse 23, it's not the Lord himself, but he does not prevent the destroyer from coming into the houses. So when it says the Lord struck all the firstborn, he allowed the destroyers to go into the households and in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now keep in mind, this is with the exception of those houses that had the blood applied. Now in verse 31, then he called for Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh calls for them and he said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord if you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds and as you've said and be gone and bless me also. So just leave. Just do me a favor and go. In the sense he's driving them out. So verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said... We shall all be dead. Now, once the firstborn died, then they think, okay, now who's next? Who's next to die? Let's get these children of Israel out of this land. And so they're concerned, lest we all be dead. So verse 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened. They took the, that which was going, they were going to bake their, their dough for the bread having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. So in other words, like we read there in Deuteronomy, this is just the wages that was due them. Deuteronomy 15 verses 12 through 14. These were the wages for 430 years of slavery. They're now just getting back pay is what they're doing. So, and this is why the Egyptians would give them, verse 35, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they're just getting their um, back pay, they're getting the reward of all the service that they've done. Now verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600 men on foot besides children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them, also flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. So at this point we see here that the children of Israel are journeying, and it says from Ramses to Succoth. Now if you look at a map of Egypt, Ramses going up to Succoth, would be that they're heading north. The unique thing about it is this, that the term Succoth means shelters. So one of two things, either they're going to that place, that 
that town that is up north, and they're going to say, we're going to leave Ramses, we're going to go to this new town, and we're going to hang out there. Or they're going to go and they're going to leave where they are and they're going to go to a place of shelters. And so either fits well within the meanings. It doesn't necessarily have to be the town that is up north. It can be they're going to the place of shelters. But note this, whether it's a town or a place of shelters, this is where it's key. About 600,000 men on foot besides children. You're looking at close to, most people believe, about a a million and a half or plus children of Israel that are going to be journeying now into the wilderness. And so that's a lot of people that are going to take off in one night. Now, if you're familiar with the Milwaukee County, um, not just the city, but the county of Milwaukee has about 1.4 million people in the county. So if you could imagine that all of Milwaukee County gets up and begins to travel in one night, that's a lot, a lot of people. And this is the journey that they begin to do. And with them now, verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them, flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. Keep in mind that God is going to over and over the New in the, the New Testament call us to be separate, be separate, be separate. This mixed multitude is going to be dragging them down again and again and again. God does not prevent the mixed multitude from going with them, but he does say that you know when you have this group that is not completely surrendered, that you have to make sure that either you're leading them in or you don't succumb to them. And so this multitude, mixed multitude, comes up also with the flocks and the herds and a great deal of livestock. Verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of the land and could not wait, nor had they prepared for provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now God had told um, Abraham for 400 years. It wasn't exactly 400 years. We understand here where it was. It was exactly 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day that came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So we see that God kept them there 430 years. They get 430 years worth of wages, and now they leave. Exactly. Only God could do that. On the time they came in, the time they leave. Now, verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So we see here that he said it's going to be throughout the generations. And you know what? It's true because (laughs) there are many children of Israel today that do still celebrate the Passover. And so it is still, it's an observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Now, there have been seasons where they haven't done it, but eventually 
God begins to quicken their heart, says, no, you need to come back to this observance. You need to recognize what I've done. And of course, Jesus is our Passover. Um, that's what we do. They have this, the, the, the ceremony. They have the observance because God did bring Israel out of Egypt, and he wants them to recognize his greatness, that he's the one who delivers them. He's the one who's done this. And so we recognize that he's the one who's delivered us from death. He's the one who delivered us from the world. Um, Egypt is the type of the world. And so we recognize Christ, but they are to recognize the Passover. And in verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Now this is key. It says in verse 44, but every man's servant who is brought who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him. In other words, when you have this covenant that God had given to Abraham, the covenant of the circumcision. This is, this is those who are, are circumcised physically, they can enter into that physical covenant of Abraham. Now, we realize, as Paul would teach in the New Testament, that it's not that physical cutting away of the flesh, but it's the spiritual cutting away of the fleshly part of the heart. We are Abraham's spiritual children. But here, to everyone who's going to come in and be a part of physical Israel, you just can't say, I'm just part of you. You literally have to say, I'm going to be part of you, and I will apply this covenant. I will allow my flesh to be circumcised, that I will become part of the physical children of Abraham. And the same way as Christians, you can't just say, hey, you know what, I, I believe in Jesus, and I believe that he's a good guy, and I believe he was a prophet, and I believe that he died. But unless you come and you allow the Spirit to circumcise the flesh of your heart, cutting away of the flesh to allow the Spirit of God to do a greater work. You can't just come and make a statement. It has to be applied like the blood. And this is why it says in verse 44, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, he may eat it. So when it says in verse 43, no foreigner can eat it, when the foreigner is circumcised, he's no longer a foreigner. He's now part of the children of Israel. He's now become a part. And in one house, oh, oh, verse 45, and a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. So if you're circumcised, you're considered part of it. But if you're not circumcised, you cannot eat of it. In verse 46, in one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger, verse 48, dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be a native as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So do you understand that once you're circumcised, you're not a foreigner anymore. You're now part of, you're as a native. You're part of that group. 
So, verse 49, one law shall be for the native and for the stranger, the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So God says there's no exceptions. If you have a child of Israel that is not circumcised, he cannot eat of it. If you're going to eat of it, you must be circumcised. And so one law is for everyone. There's not like there's a law for me, but not for thee. And so one law, verse 49, shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on that very same day, the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. He brings out this group that at one point was children coming and made them a congregation, and now he makes them into an army. And, and keep in mind that this is what God does with all of us. He brings us in as children. He then grows us up into the spiritual connecting group to him, and then he sends us out to win souls. Then he sends us out to do his will. He sends us out to battle the enemy that has entrapped the people and blinded them and hardened their hearts. And it's our job to go and to, with the word of God and the spirit of God, to allow that word to go into these areas, to open the eyes of the blind, to soften the hearts, that they too could come to this place where they come and apply the blood of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, would you allow my heart, the flesh in my heart, would you cut it off? And would you cut it out and allow my heart to be open to your leading, to the leading of the Spirit and to the directing of your word? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you again that, that this Passover is no little thing. And thank you, Lord, for just allowing us to spend most of the time with the foundation last week. But we're grateful for what you showed us today. This is a precious thing, Lord. It is a precious thing. The most devastating judgment that would come upon the entirety of the land of Egypt. Death is conquered by a lamb. Jesus the Lamb of God has brought victory to all of us. We are so grateful. And teach us, Lord, teach us to apply this blood, this life that we now live in the flesh. We live by faith in the Son of God. We've been crucified with you. It's no longer us who live. But, but you, we live through you. So, Lord, do the work. Help us apply what it is that you need us to apply Lord, recognizing that it's not just repeating these truths, telling them to our kids, but, but letting them see our service unto you. And watch them transform us, Lord, from children to congregations to armies, that we would be mighty for God. Do the work through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.